I, let me just add that I love Jesus Christ and I love the Church of Jesus Christ. And it is a privilege for me to be part of River City. Uh, about 10 months now I've been part. Um, normally I'm in the first hour of worship, so some of us haven't seen each other before. But um, I'm very pleased to be part of this congregation and especially now to get to listen to God's Word together with you and to consider what it means for us. So, as I have been thinking about this passage of Scripture and studying how it applies to us, I have come to two new appreciations, or if you will, understandings of what faith means. And I've shared these with our pastors, and they have encouraged me to share these understandings with you, and it's fitting that they come before the Scripture. First, under, first new understanding. Before, faith has always seemed to me to be best understood as a matter of believing. If you tell me she is a woman of faith, what I would understand is that person has a commitment to believing Christian truth. She has hold, she's holding on to it. Maybe that's how you see it also. But as I considered this passage and the rest of Hebrews and even the rest of the New Testament, I realized that often faith is best understood as a two-part idea. And the two parts are belief and obedience. They go together. Participate with me in an illustration of this idea. Would everyone please inhale? Now exhale. Which of those two actions was breathing? Both of them, of course. Precisely. Because breathing is a two-part idea. If you tell me he is breathing, I understand that you mean breathing in and breathing out. Yes, because breathing is a two-part idea. In the same sense, faith in the New Testament is a two-part idea. In Genesis 15, 6, we're told he, Abram, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. The focus is on Abraham's conviction of truth. Genesis 26, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments. It is about Abraham's obedience. Now, in James chapter 2, we're again pointed to Abraham, and James writes, you see that Abraham's faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Okay, then. Faith paired with works or obedience is what faith is. And if you want, this is also consistent with Jesus' parables about kings and masters and servants and slaves. Faith is a two-part idea. Belief and obedience. 
The second new understanding for me is that believing obedience is the core of a relationship with God. This looks back to the beginning of chapter 11 when we read that without faith it is impossible to please God. We could say that believing obedience is God's primary love language. This is how God most wants to be loved. We are, of course, commanded to love God with our emotions, and we do. But in God's eyes, the evidence of our love for Him is not the strength of our emotions. It is the completeness of our obedience. That is what shows Him we love Him. John 14, 31, but I, Jesus, do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Faith as believing obedience is how we love God. If there are emotions that go with that, all the better. But the emotions are not the substance. The emotions are the dressing. The substance is believing obedience. And believing obedience is the goal of the book of Hebrews. And that tells God that we really love Him. So, faith well understood is believing obedience, a two-part idea, mental and physical, that God is pleased to develop in those who seek Him. And this faith is the foundation and core of a Christian's relationship with God. <clears throat> Let me take this just one step further. Think with me. If faith is a two-part idea combining belief and obedience, what would you say is the opposite of faith? My first reaction is to say, well, the opposite of faith is fear. But I think that's wrong. If faith is believing obedience, the opposite must be disbelieving disobedience. Disbelieving disobedience is the opposite of faith. Fear comes in as part of the temptation not to obey, not to believe and not to obey. But experiencing fear is not a failure of faith. It is a test of faith. We can be afraid and still believe and still obey. Failing to believe and failing to obey in the presence of faith, that is the failure of faith. Fear is not the issue, it is the temptation. Let me give you an example of how I experienced this. One spring day in high school, my PE class 
was being tested on running the 220-yard dash. The arrangement was that at one end of the long straightaway, the teacher stood at the finish line with a stopwatch and a starting pistol. At the other end of the straightaway, all of the class was arranged in groups. And each time he fired the starter's pistol, a group would run, he would catch the times, write it down, and then he would repeat the process to time the whole class. I was in the last group. And as we were waiting for our turn, one of the guys said, hey, if we move five yards closer to the finish line, we'll get better times, and the coach will never know we're too far away. Yeah! As a Christian, I had an instant dilemma. If I participate, now I'm sharing in their sin. But if I start at the original starting line, this is obvious. And now we have questions that nobody wants to answer at the finish line. And with that, I was afraid. There's only one of me, and there are lots of them. What will happen if I object to this plan? Will there be a price? I couldn't know. By the grace of God, I was able to say, you guys start wherever you want. I'm going to start here. Well, they could immediately see that they didn't want to answer those questions either. And so they all lined up with me. The gun fired, we ran. And I hoped that would be the end of it. And it was. There were no unpleasant consequences. I did not pay a price for having done that. But I couldn't know that in advance, and I had to leave it in God's hands. The experience has encouraged me ever since, and I believe that God knew I loved him that day. Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 16. <clears throat> By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, eh, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The first example of Abraham's faith held up to us is when God called Abraham to leave the place he and his extended family lived because God was promising to give them another place to live. I will show you. And we are simply told that Abraham promptly obeyed. The language emphasizes that Abraham didn't debate the question, didn't spend time wondering, but rather without hesitation, he began the process of preparing to move. By the record, Abraham did not trouble himself about knowing where he was going or even knowing why. Enough for him that God had called him to set out. Okay. Never mind that this looked like a journey to, from security to insecurity, that they would be going from resident status to alien status, from the known to the unknown, or that this was a huge surprise and serious disruption. And consider further that God only said, I'm going to show you a place he didn't specify how, he didn't say where or when. And that was enough for Abraham. That's what the author of Hebrews wants to impress on us. We too are called to faith. We too are called to believing obedience in God's promise that he is preparing a homeland for us. He has it picked out. He has it in mind. Will we pack up to go on the move? A further observation that the author of Hebrews makes is that even though God led Abraham and his family to the earthly land that would one day be inherited, Abraham did not inherit or possess that land during his lifetime. He lived there in tents as a visitor, temporary resident, sojourner. And so also his son and his grandson, Isaac and Jacob, to whom the same promise had been given. And so also you, and so also me we too are told to expect to be sojourners, temporary residents, aliens, travelers, aliens on this earth. Maybe you are facing a decision and you are wishing you knew God's will for you. You read about Abraham and you think, it would be so nice to have clear and 
confident understanding of what God wants me to do. But it's not that way for me. Believe me, you are not alone in wishing for clearer understanding, guidance. And it may seem like, until I get clear guidance, how can I obey? But consider this observation from Philip Yancey. How can we obey without certainty when plagued by doubts? I have concluded that faith requires obedience without full knowledge. Like Job, like Abraham, I accept that much lies beyond my finite grasp, and yet I choose to trust God anyhow, humbly accepting my position as a creature whose worth and very life depend upon God's mercy. This became real to me when I was a student at a Christian college because between my freshman and sophomore years, there was an opportunity to participate in a missions trip. Under the circumstances, I was pretty sure that if I applied, I would be accepted. But I didn't know for sure whether this was what God had wanted for me. And the idea that they would accept me made the decision all the harder because it meant that I couldn't depend on the committee to be the indicator of God's will, at least as I was thinking, and that what I decided was what was going to happen. So what does God want me to do? Was he calling me to do this? I spent time praying and wondering and considering Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Or in one version, direct your paths. When you read these verses, do you see a command or do you see a promise? A command or a promise? I first understood them to present me a command. I was to trust God to lead me and guide me. Okay then, I'm trusting and waiting for the guidance. And it wasn't coming. I was as uncertain on the fifth day as I was on the first day and on the tenth day as on the fifth day. And then God gave me to see that these verses include both a command and a promise. I am commanded to trust, and God promises to guide me whether I recognize how he is doing that or not. I may not feel, see, or know how he is guiding me. That becomes part of the trust, just as when God called Abraham. We don't know how God led Abraham. And candidly, Abraham may not have known either. <laughs> but he and we believe that God did lead Abraham. And we can believe that he will lead us in the same way. So, I applied for the mission project, I was accepted, I spent a good summer in Columbia, South America, 
and I learned a lot. I learned about Colombians, I learned about service, and I learned about my spiritual poverty. I learned about my need to grow. And I think God wanted that. And from that here, I would tell you I believe God led me, but I don't know how. In verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews 11, the second example of Abraham's faith follows God's promise to give Abraham and Sarah a son despite their advanced ages. More than that, God promised that through this son, Abraham and Sarah would have numberless descendants. Once again, God simply committed him to the outcome. He didn't say how, and at first didn't say when. You will have a son. I'll take care of the details. And God's timetable took a lot longer than Abraham and Sarah thought it would, and much longer than they wanted it to. We know from Genesis that they struggled with the waiting and got in the way, actually. But the author of Hebrews ignores these problems to impress on us that God could and did do what he had promised. The challenges were not too big. Hebrews wants us to appreciate that God will keep his promises no matter how impossible it seems to us. Even though Abraham and Sarah struggled with the waiting, their faith saw God keep his promise to them. In this second example of faith, Abraham has the challenge not of believing and acting, but of believing and waiting. Waiting for God's timing, waiting for God's choice of circumstances, God's action. The hard part was inaction, not action, of waiting, of not making things happen. This was hard for them, hard for us. We may believe that we are missing opportunities, that we are losing out, that God has forgotten about us. We experience the fear of losing out. But believing obedience means we face down that fear and we say, God hasn't forgotten. He will keep his promise. The second half of our passage today has the author of Hebrews reflecting on what happened in Genesis. In verse 13, we read that by their faith, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob, had seen the future, the future fulfillment of God's promises. This connects back, I think, to what we read at the beginning of Hebrews 11, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When we talk today of seeing the fulfillment of God's promises, believers often refer to this as seeing with the eyes of faith. Here's an illustration that may help you as it has me. In the days of sailing ships, 
the tallest mast on the ship, at the very top of the mast, would have a perch built. Small place, high up. This was called the crow's nest. And it was there to be used to get a better view than could be had from the ship's deck because the greater height would allow a person to see a little further over the curvature of the earth. It was enough of a difference to let you see beyond. Sea level horizon was here, crow level horizon was there. The eyes of faith are like that. God has chosen to reveal future realities in various ways. And the person whose faith can believe and hold on to those revelations is in effect seeing over the horizon of time. When a sailor would climb to the crow's nest and see the destination just beyond sight, he would cry out, Land ho! Which everyone wanted to hear. These travelers presented to us in Hebrews are people who have seen over the horizon of time and they are calling out to us from the crow's nest of faith, I see it! Land ho! City ho! Continue on! We're almost there. I like that. Thank you. In verse 10, the author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham was content to live in tents because he believed that God ultimately intended to keep his promises by bringing Abraham to the heavenly city of God. The end of Abraham's journey and the fulfillment of God's promises to him were not to be on this earth. How did Abraham know that? How did the author of Hebrews know that? We aren't told. But it makes Abraham an even better parallel and example for us in our situation. What the scripture calls the city of God is our ultimate destination. Set aside your preference for town living or country living. Irrelevant. The city in the mind of our author is the capital city where the great king lives, God most high. This is the place of privilege and joy, the center of fulfillment and satisfaction, our true home. Because ever since the Garden of Eden, the human race has been longing for the home that it has lost. And in God's plan, one day he will bring us home again. Our true home is wherever God is. A second reflect, or another reflection that the author of Hebrews presents in verse 14 is that Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob were all looking for a homeland. There's a little different flavor. For a place where they could live and no longer be wanderers, no longer be aliens, no longer be travelers. The end of the journey. The city and the land of their great king. Wasn't that they didn't like the new place where God had led them, but rather they understood that God had something far better in mind. As good as Canaan was, 
It's still temporary. They weren't there yet. And God never intended that this better country would be on this earth. The homeland that God had promised and that they were seeking would be heavenly. And so we sing the song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. That's the perspective that Abraham held also. The author of Hebrews would have us understand and appreciate that when God called Abraham and said, go, he had in mind the atonement bought by Jesus and the heavenly city that would result for them. Jesus' atonement and exaltation and second coming were part of the call of Abraham. One hymn writer speaks of the the appeal of what God has prepared for us with these words. Then we shall be where we would be. Then we shall be what we should be. Things that are not now, nor could be, soon shall be our own. I love that. Author C.S. Lewis ends his Chronicles of Narnia with all of the creatures surprised at finding themselves together in the new, true Narnia. And Lewis has captured some of the biblical idea of our future homeland with these sentences. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forefoot on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. Biblical theology asserts that we are to understand that God has divided time into two ages. This age, characterized by sin and evil, and another coming age, which will be characterized by the absence of sin and evil and the glories of God's unlimited kingdom rule. This is the promise of God that Christians are are waiting for. Christians are people who are committed to waiting for the age to come. In this present age, our planet and everything on it are under a curse. And there is much about this world, much about the people on this world, that displeases God. In God's mercy, this rebellious world is allowed to continue. But God has set a time for judgment and renewal. All the sins and injustices of the world in history will one day be resolved to God's complete satisfaction and to no one's complaint. The curse will be ended along with all sin and all evil. Jesus will return in power and glory. This age will come to an end and the age to come will be established for eternity. Our home will be with God and all of his people. Our redemption will finally be completed, new bodies and all. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And all of God's promises will continue to be fulfilled throughout the rest of eternity. What a glorious hope. 
and so we seek faith. Verse 13 reads, these all died in faith. We can just as legitimately render these words, these all died, dominated, or governed, or controlled by faith. That's got more punch to it, doesn't it? These all died, dominated by faith. One commentator paraphrases it this way. They regulated their whole lives by these promises. Same idea. Their example for us is to be completely faithful to the end of our lives. I want to live and die dominated by faith. Because of that desire, I'm trying to cultivate these convictions. Here are some of the values that I want to govern my life. God will honor all of his promises. God's fulfillments will come, will extend into the age to come, and I am willing to wait. My true home is not here and not in this age, but in the coming age. The best use of my life here is as a servant and a steward of Jesus Christ. Service to Jesus matters more than my comfort or my pleasure. Dependence on God is essential. I am convinced that the prayer I need to make most often in view of these commitments is, Father, help me please. Help me please. Many times each day. This encourages my dependence. It attacks my pride. And naturally, the prayer that will frequently follow is, thank you, Father. Thank you. This is how we recognize our sin. This is how we seek guidance. This is how we grow in believing obedience. And so, the author of Hebrews encourages us let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. To live by God's values, we need to ask God for help. Help me to believe. Help me to obey. Help me to make you the most important part of my life. Change my heart so I don't waste my life on things that don't matter. Forgive me for where I failed. Help me to change. I think Randy Elkhorn has a good shorthand for this. This life is like a dot. It is limited and brief, small. What follows this life is like a line that goes on and on and on and on. It makes good sense to use this dot to prepare for that line. Because we believe that God has promised an age to come, we steward our time on earth to invest in that future. And as we go at this, note that Abraham and his family didn't always get it right. They struggled, sometimes failed, fell short. But God is merciful, he is gracious, and he is faithful. And he continued to work with Abraham and those who came after him. He helped them believe. He helped them obey. And so he will do with us 
because he has not changed. We too remain sinners with unreliable hearts, but we are called to relationship with God, and by his grace our faith can continue and live and grow, and by faith our lives can be steered, even through great darkness, even through great adversity. And so we make it our purpose to keep heading home. In Hebrews 12, this heading home is likened to running a race. Is that because we're supposed to live in a hurry? I think not. I think the author of Hebrews is suggesting that because running involves effort and focus, it makes a good image for us to hold in our minds. Walking, we carry things. We wander, we dawdle, we watch the squirrels, we fool around. But running, our hands are empty. We're intent on getting somewhere. Long run or short, sprint or marathon, a runner has a goal in mind. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This marathon will last our whole lives. Keep moving toward our homeland. And finally, Hebrews 12 challenges us to keep our eyes on Jesus as we run. We are invited to remember Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and Jacob, Noah and these others. But we are urged to focus on Jesus. Make him your model and hope. His example of living in a believing obedience is our prime focus. We learn from the others, but we follow Jesus. On the back table, there are some sample materials that may encourage you in this perspective on faith and marathon living. I invite you to check them out. And now I'd like to pray with you. Would you bow? Heavenly Father, thank you for these examples. And thank you especially for the Lord Jesus and the opportunity we have to follow him home. We ask you to help us. Help us obey, help us believe, help us be faithful, help us to seek you with all our hearts, and bring us to the day when we are finally home. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.